Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. If, as is likely, President Trump succeeds in appointing Amy Coney Barrett to produce, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, corporations and the American elite may have a Supreme Court that is more generous to their interests than any in decades. And, and even if Joe Biden wins, he's been one of the Democrats most friendly to Wall Street, the financial industry and big business. So the trend to looser regulation and oversight of business and the wealthy, those too big to fail or jail, may continue for years. Regulation, corporate governance, and white-collar crime are the subjects of University of Vermont law professor Jennifer Taub's research, and she examines how corporate criminality is evolving and what uh, might be done about it in her latest book, Big Dirty Money, The Shock, Injustice, and uh, Unseen Cost of White-Collar Crime. Uh, it's published by Viking, and I'm very pleased that it brings Professor Taub to our show right now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Leonard. I want to make one quick comment um, because my dean will have I... my head. I'm now at um, Western New England University School of Law. I joined the faculty oh, yes. just this August, and so I must wave the flag. Okay. Um, the the, uh, the one of the big news stories, of course, has been the New York Times report that Donald Trump has either paid little or no taxes for years. Does tax avoidance by the elite constitute a white collar crime of the kind that you discuss in this book? Uh, that's such a great question. Tax avoidance is a bit different than tax evasion and tax fraud, but yes, generally speaking, not paying taxes and creating complex um, structures offshore and through shell companies are ways that the very wealthy um, and well-connected um, prevent the intimidate and prevent the IRS from even auditing them. And, and so there's a lot of, so go ahead. No, finish your thought. Yeah. I mean, so there's, you know, there's a lot of, undetected and unenforced tax fraud out there, no doubt. But what's even more astonishing is when we look at the story that the New York Times broke that you just mentioned, um, uh, was it just on Sunday, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that he's been under audit for years fighting over, you know, fighting over a substantial sum of money, spending untold amount of money to fight to fight um, ultimately a, a, a tax, possible tax judgment um, against him. And, you know, that doesn't, it, that's not entirely uncommon. There's, a, there's money um, that, that goes uncollected every year by the IRS. It's, um, it's, very, it's very upsetting because at some point um, they're no longer able um, to collect it. And so, that, you know, what, what we know is that, you know, the IRS should be is the ideal place if you want to um, level the playing field to staff up. But they've cut it to the bone. It's unbelievable. But um, not for me. Um, there was a discrepancy, <laughs> a disagreement over my taxes last year, and I wound up being threatened with major fines. I just paid it. But it's been pointed out that the tax avoidance strategies the president capitalized on to, to shrink his tax bill to uh, pretty much nothing, are 
quite common among major real estate developers and other extremely wealthy Americans. Um, they're doing it legally. The, the 400 richest Americans often pay taxes at lower rates than the middle class because uh, so much income from wealth is taxed at low or zero rates by law. Yes. I mean, I talk about that also in my book. There's a chapter called Tax and Punish because the laws are set up to favor those who are extraordinarily wealthy and have made made the tax laws truly unfair. They don't, they don't pay their share even when they're abiding by the laws, there there are you know so many examples. There's um, the famous special treatment that hedge fund managers uh, get. You know, there's special special loopholes um, that that have you know sort of you know boring names, but are, it's sort of where all the where all the money is. Um, and the carried interest loophole, for example. Also, as you mentioned, you know the um, people pay less money on capital gains. Than they do on ordinary income, and you know everyone knows about these issues, but there no one's ever those in power will not close those gaps, will not make it more fair. So it's in everything fact they widened the them, didn't they, uh, with the the most recent tax law that was passed after Trump became president? Yeah, I mean he came into office saying that he was going to be a pre- president who took care of the forgotten man, and then he forgot. Now, white-collar crime refers to economic inequality, but does it also suggest racial inequality in ways that we fail to recognize? For example, many for many years, crack cocaine and powder cocaine were treated differently under the law, even though their effects were pretty much the same. Crack cocaine was more popular uh, among poor people and many African-Americans, powder more so among whites. And, and such racial inequalities... Uh, uh, are such racial inequalities also found in uh, the other the other aspects of what's called white collar crime? Absolutely, um, there there's class and race um, bias built into all of this, and you can see it, you know, example by example. So I believe that there's a double standard in America where that that perpetuates inequality. In other words, if you're very wealthy, usually white and well-connected, you can evade taxes, um, even criminally do so. There's a lot that you can do, opportunities you have to cut corners and never face consequences. If you're a corporate CEO of a firm, even where the firm enters into either a rare guilty plea or a deferred prosecution agreement, if it's a very large corporation, you're going to be maybe shown the door and given a giant bonus near retirement and live out your days without shame or jail time. Um, whereas if you are poor um, or a person of color or both, that's not the case. And I'll give you I'll give you an example. People talk a lot about police brutality when they focus on the essentially the murder of Eric Garner on the streets of New York when he was selling loose cigarettes. But few people recognize that that was a white-collar crime. It was, ta- it was a tax scam, right? He was trying to take advantage of the fact that cigarettes could be purchased out of state um, in states where there was very low state and city taxes on the cigarettes and sold the packages opened up and sold loose in New York, where in New York City and New York State the taxes are high. And it was like a win-win situation. It's a classic arbitrage. He made money. 
pack by pack because he was buying everything cheaper than he was selling it. And even people on the street could buy an individual cigarette in New York from him cheaper than they would have if they bought a whole pack themselves, plus it was convenient. And, you know, he was engaging in this kind of economic crime. It was his arbitrage opportunity. And what happens? He is, you know, circled, tackled, straight, you know, choked to death and dies on the streets of New York because he was violating the tax laws. You know, and, and by the way, the key part of this, we all know what happened to the officers involved. They weren't prosecuted um, because a decision was made that that was reasonable force. And what's baked into that is racial bias. It's racism. And I, you, you know this is the case, because let me just give you one more example parallel to this, Leonard. What if a white woman were taking her taxes that she's paying in March, or this year it was later because of, you know, COVID, and she slid the envelope, her signed tax returns, into a post office box, right? Mailing it in, so, you know, right there, already engaging in mail fraud if it's a fraudulent return, cheating on her taxes. Can you imagine... You know, a, a group of, you know, half a dozen police officers circling her by that blue post office box, tackling her and choking her on the streets. Everybody would say that that was, you know, unjustifiable and it would have violated her, you know, violated her rights. So well, we is, see plenty of representations of violent crime as entertainment on shows like Cops, uh, right. which is now canceled, but Law and Order. Uh, but I, I can't remember seeing too many about white collar crime. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to blue-collar crime. Um, well, that's, you know, it's interesting that it, it turns out that the idea of white-collar crime, back when the, uh, the, the word, the, the phrase was coined in 1939 by a sociologist named Edwin Sutherland, he was trying to look at not just, he wasn't trying to, he defined white-collar crime more based on the status of the offender than the type of offense. It wasn't just all economic crime or all, you know, it wasn't just like, a, a, you know, embezzling at work if you're, you know, at the cash register. He was looking at people with, who were respectable people and with high social status who committed crimes connected to their occupations. It has now developed into thinking any kind of economic crime. So even if, again, if you're a cash, you know, if you're the cashier and you take some dollars out of the cash register or if you write a bad check. Um, and you're poor, you just do that to get by, that can be considered um, white-collar crime. I call that blue-collar white-collar crime. That's how much distorted this sociologist concept has become. I think we need to get back to looking at the danger that's the most um, you know, well-heeled individuals and corporations perpetuate, perpetrate on society because they're the ones who cause the most damage the most quickly. Edwin Sutherland was uh, working during the Great Depression and the New Deal. There have been a number of attacks on New Deal principles since the 1970s. How has treatment of white-collar crime evolved? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. The treatment of white-collar crime, the kind of, particularly in the corporate arena, has gone through these kinds of um, waves, right? There have been you know, I think we're in, in basically an epidemic right now, white-collar crime, but we've had crime waves and crackdowns over the history. So, you know, at the time, you know, of the New Deal, um, there, you know, there were bankers who went to jail. There was real accountability. And we saw the same thing um, after the savings and loan debacle of the 1980s, where I think it was roughly 1,000 um, bankers of all types, you know, went to jail because they had, had done what um, – you know, what Bill Black calls control fraud, where they'd taken over these banking firms, they took advantage of deregulation, and they, um, 
you know, they they cheated and, and committed fraud and they, they were prosecuted and went to jail. So that, you know, we had that pattern. And then came the accounting fraud, the Enron era. Lots of people were prosecuted and held accountable. There was an Enron task force. In fact, it was led by Andrew Weissman, a name we all might know uh-huh. because he has a new book out about his role with the Mueller investigation. Uh-huh. But then something weird happened after the accounting fraud, which is after the 2008 financial crisis. Not a single high-level banking executive went to jail. and But instead, what happened is several of them um, entered into um, civil settlements with, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission or the banking regulators, and didn't no one no one prosecuted them. And I think that set a very bad precedent. Um, but things, but at the, toward the end of the Obama administration, they did start to crack down again. That's the good news. But when Trump came into office, um, it became kind of a free for all for white collar well, criminality. What about the Wells Fargo story, uh, where? Um, Wells Fargo uh, created millions of fraudulent savings and checking accounts on behalf of its clients without their consent. Has anybody been punished for that? You know, it's interesting. The Wells Fargo example is the perfect example because I believe some, you know, if you look at the, 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 the chain of punishment there, first you had over a substantial period of time from 2009 through 2016, Wells Fargo opened as many as 3.5 million accounts, checking savings and credit without mm-hmm. customers' consent, right? That's the time frame. And at first, the only accountability was for those employees who said, I don't want to do this. They were fired. So that, that was the first accountability. And then now um, there have been some people who have been held accountable at a sort of middle-ish level. But the person who was never held to account was the CEO, John Stumpf. And when the truth came out, he's an you know, example of what I, what I was talking about earlier. In 2016, he resigned, but he got $134 million in an exit payment. And also to talk about how toothless regulators are, then in 2020, this year, the Office of the Control of the Currency, the OCC, the big banking regulator, Find him a small amount of money, didn't really make much of a dent on either that giant exit payment of $134 million or the money he'd made previously. But then they actually went ahead and banned him from working in the industry, which is just a joke. I mean, he was 66 years mm-hmm. old. He was already retired. And he got all of millions of dollars to live on. Yep. And you're you're listening to Let It Locate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. My guest is Professor Jennifer Taub. Her latest book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime. It's published by Viking. Has anybody defined exactly what white collar crime is? Scholars or criminologists or sociologists, do they agree? Um, this is what's interesting. There are way too many definitions of white-collar crime. Um, that's why I'm preferring to try to use the term big, dirty money or big money crime. Um, the way we talk about big pharma, we'll talk about big law, like the giant enterprises or big tech. You know, there's, there's white-collar crime, as I mentioned, was defined by Edwin Sutherland in 1939 and later elaborated on it about a decade later in 1950 when he wrote a book. Um, called white collar crime, and his idea is that it was 
white-collar crime were offenses that were committed by people of high social status um, who were respected, who committed crime during, you know, in the course of their occupation. And when he came up with this in, you know, 1939, he was looking back on the robber baron era. He was looking at antitrust uh, law violations. He was considering union busting, you know, using violence. He was thinking about industrial um, accidents and deaths. And when he wrote his book, his, his entire book was primarily um, writing about corporate criminality. And it was so shocking at the time that his publisher made him redact um, the names of the corporations he was trying to name and shame or they wouldn't wouldn't publish it. And there's been a, you know, in the 80s, they, it was republished with the names put back in and one of the missing chapters published. So he had that definition where it was a combination of high status plus a kind of economic crime. Over the years, the term has branched out to have many different definitions. You have criminologists who have one way of looking at it. You have, um, oh, actually, have criminologists who have many ways of looking at it. Sociologists more generally have different ways, um, and prosecutors, too. In the, in the legal field, it's really become split between people who talk about corporate crime and those who talk about white-collar crime. Corporate crime is more if a corporation violates any laws, including securities laws and so on. But white-collar crime has become defined by the offense, not the offender. So prosecutors and those who collect the data um, might even, you know, use an example of what um, what sociologists would call occupational crime, where you know anyone, who, any employee who does who commits a you know even a small time offense, someone who cheats a welfare cheat, someone like who cheats on their welfare, um, they would be considered a white collar criminal under the new definition. Um, so it's in in and then the, you know I could go on and on, and in fact. Most of the folks have given up on creating a uniform definition, and where that's a problem is we don't really have a handle. You know, if someone tells you it's it, white collar crime is up or down, or enforcement is up or down, it, you know, we don't really know. Um, the mm-hmm. more accurate information is when it's, you know, when someone talks about specifically, you know, insider trading, you know, specifically, or something like mortgage fraud. It's more going to be more accurate if you look at the slices of it than if you just take a blanket definition these days. Corporations are treated differently despite the fact that the Supreme Court uh, decided that corporations uh, have the same rights as, as individuals. <laughs> so, Well, uh, you know, it's interesting that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's um, work on get corporate identity I call it multiple personality disorder because sometimes, you know, corporations aren't always treated the same way. Sometimes they're treated as, you know, um, an association of people, as in the Citizens United case Mm -hmm. or the Masterpiece Cake Shop, where we look, instead of looking at the corporate entity, they look through at the owners and say, whatever the owners want, they get. But for other purposes, the owners get to be shielded when they don't want to be seen. And it's really uh, convenient if you actually look at the jurisprudence at the Supreme Court level. It's a convenient way to give corporations, you know, as many rights as they they want and as few responsibilities that they don't want. Has uh, are there any uh, state or federal agencies that track the cost of cybercrime? 
um, of white collar crime or cyber crime in particular? I mean, well, no, I, I shouldn't have said cyber crime. I, I, although I, I wonder whether cyber crime is considered a white collar crime. So the the, the costs of of white collar crime, the way that they do violent crimes. It's. I wanted to try to find that, and it turns out that the answer to that question is no. Um, I, I, um, if you have different, you know, when it comes, you just don't. And I, and I, it's hard to explain it, um, why that is or how that works on the radio, other than to say that it's, it's, it's not done, um, the same way in part, because although the FBI has an, does an incredible job gathering crime statistics from reporting agencies, thousands of them across the country, local, state, tribes, colleges, federal, they're, when they gather data, they're gathering things, for example, that start with usually arrest. And as you know, the way white-collar crime works is, is there's not necessarily any sort of moment that, when th- these cases could be investigated for years in a, you know, by a civil agency, you know, or it could be invested, investigated. Let's say it's an, you know, you look, you look at something like Trump's tax returns. The IRS could be auditing mm-hmm. someone for years, and then maybe something ends up in a civil settlement. It never even reaches reaches the, the you know, the, the the criminal realm where the, uh, you know, the, there'd be a reporting of it. Or even when a corporation enters into a deferred prosecution agreement, that might not be something that ever makes it into the FBI statistics. So instead. What you have when you see some, there are very good databases where people are collecting information either independently or they're looking at the Department of Justice data, um, which is good, but it comes too far along in the in the chain of events. So the Department of Justice does have the U.S. Attorney's offices around the country um, reporting. There are 93 of them reporting the cases that they're they they pursue. And you can look at that, but again, it happens later. You know, you're not getting every single investigation. Um, you're only going to get things where the U.S. Attorney's Office is picking it up. And when you actually look at their white-collar crime categories, the mm-hmm. kinds of things that they include under that, they include or exclude, it's not the same thing as how many of us would organize information or even how the FBI collects it. So it's, it's you know, my, my well, goal would be, I, I love to have data that works. And so one of my goals is to actually have a way to met, to collect and measure this in a way that we can get a handle on it. An attorney for Ivanka Trump and uh, Donald Trump Jr. arranged a fundraiser for Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance after he refused to prosecute them for fraud. Do some white collar criminals simply buy lenient treatment or is, uh, that's just a complicated story. You know, I don't want to accuse anyone of, um, you know, of, of bribery. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, make that accusation. But what I would say is one of the hardest challenges um, for people who are supposed to be in law enforcement is that, um, they are often subject to this to to a kind of um, captured mindset, um, and you know you look at you look at many you know prosecutors at the federal level are appointed, so they 
you know, they're going to be selected um, by whoever is running the, you know, the high-level prosecutors, whoever's running, you know, the Department of Justice, and we've lost some of that independence. And things like district attorneys are elected, and 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 district attorneys are at the county level typically, and then we have the state um, att- uh, state attorneys general who are elected also. So you look at, you know, hopefully um, they're the right people in the right jobs, but they're under the pressure to fundraise apparently to run for office. So maybe that leads to um, can in some cases lead to unconscious or conscious bias. But I think the bigger problem is at that at all along the chain from the you know from the, those who would be investigating all the way through the sentencing process, the you know class plays a huge issue in this, and people tend to have more empathy for those who look like them. Now you and, write about mutually assured immunity. What do you mean yeah, by that? So I think there's a, I think there's two things. I think there's an implicit immunity. For the upper class, um, which comes from mutually assured immunity. So mutually assured immunity is where um, people solve their problems within their own community or, you know, clan or tribe, however you want to think of it. So the mutually assured immunity can be really dangerous in the case of someone like um, like Epstein, um, because mu- the really worst kind of mutually assured immunity is where someone has dirt on another person. So let, you know, so let's say Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein supposedly has a lot, uh, had a lot of information about extremely wealthy and powerful people. And you don't even need to say to somebody, you know, if if he has done, if he has, let's say he arranged for, um, for these uh, relationships, um, you know, with, with young girls that were unlawful, then you don't even need to, he wouldn't even need to say to somebody once, once the person knew that he had it on tape or he had witnessed something that was illegal and would ruin, maybe ruin some, someone's career, that other person is going to now look the other way, right? It's a kind of mutually assured. I have dirt on you. You have dirt on me. It's a truth. You know, it's like a cross licensing agreement. (laughs) If you, you know, it's like they have something on each other and, I think that's part of the problem, and I think it's not. It's become. We've been to the same parties. Yep, and this is something that you know is, is more common in the mob world. You hear about organized crime wanting people, you know, to be wanting to get somebody involved in something illegal so that you have something on them later. It's no wonder that every you know so many of Donald Trump's associates have been mm-hmm. later you know you know have been. Um, Indicted and convicted, and some even sent to prison. He, you know, he, there's a, he may choose people around him that are tainted, get them to do what he wants, and then if they get caught, the other thing benefit he can do is say, "Well, this guy was a crook to begin with, right?" It's a, it, it, but he's just doing this on kind of a supersonic level. Um, or you can get Bill Barr to uh, intervene on their behalf. Are are wealthy corporations and individuals held to a different standard of justice because they can afford armies of lawyers? Of course. I mean, a number of journalists have detailed Donald Trump's history of drawing out legal proceedings, uh, running out the clock. Uh, is that a common technique among white collar criminals? Well, I mean, that's a common technique even among people who aren't criminals among anyone who has wealth and resources who doesn't want to, if they just don't want to do 
the honorable thing, they'll, they'll run the clock. I mean, there's lots of stuff that Trump did that was unsavory but not criminal. I mean, the stories before he was elected that we heard about him not paying contractors. Hmm. And, you know, that's why, you know, there's a, that old expression that possession that's is not, not criminal. criminal. That's not criminal for me to hire somebody and then not pay that person? It's not criminal if at the outset you didn't intend to defraud them. Breach of contract is not a crime. It's a civil offense. Hmm. It's not even a tort. You know, it's not something you can get punitive damages for. We have to take a little break, unfortunately, but uh, we'll continue this conversation in just a, a moment. Uh, you're listening to WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming online at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Professor Jennifer Taub, I'd like to take just a few moments to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners, <clears throat> excuse me, get all choked up about this. <clears throat> all of our listeners to step up right now, go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or go to our website, give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And, and I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing on today's show. Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime by my guest, Professor Jennifer Taub. But whatever level you're able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The, the important thing is that you take that step and keep this show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org and please help support the only 100% listener supported radio station in the New York metropolitan area. We depend on our listeners for all of our support. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. From all of us to all of you, thanks for helping us stay on the air. And now I'm returning to uh, Jennifer Taub, professor of law at Western New England University. Um, her uh, book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime is published by Viking. Uh, I want to talk about some of the other scandals we've had recently. For example, uh, in the, the opioid crisis, at different times in our history, haven't whole industries been more prone to white collar crime, like the oil industry, big tobacco, and and more recently, big pharma? I think that there's all, you know, businesses are made up of people. And if the incentives are structured in such a way to prioritize sales, um, regardless of the safety of a product, um, some people are going to do that. And if you don't have 
outside law enforcement cracking down or if you don't have a robust kind of whistleblower program, which we don't in this country, the bad guys will get in charge and get to the top of these organizations. And I you know, just want to emphasize you know, Bill Black again, his idea of control fraud. And we have a system where there can be a lot of good people. I mean, there are plenty of smart, good people who work in pharma, who work in banking, who work in all these businesses, but it doesn't really matter how well-intended they are if the people running the place at the top are demanding they meet their numbers, regardless of, of safety and regardless of other, other concerns. And that's absolutely what happened, um, you know, with Big Pharma and the opioid crisis. Which you write about in this book. Now, the yeah. marketing of opioids has cost lives. Does that make it a violent crime or is it still counted as white collar crime? If so it's considered crime at all. Yeah. Look, I, I um, well, what's interesting is people maybe don't even know about, we look at one of the companies, Purdue Pharma, which made OxyContin, mm -hmm. which was actually not, didn't even have as big of a share of the market as some of the other opioids, but they really, um, their their process of pushing um, pushing oxycontin for uses it should not have been pushed for and for marketing it very strenuously to to doctors and others despite the risks of addiction for things that should not have been used for um, they the company actually um, actually pleaded guilty of a crime back in 2006 and yet still continued business. And three of the executives distributing opioids despite knowing the risks. Well, it was it was a it was actually a Food and Drug Administration FDA Act violation of mislabeling because they oh. were you know the key th <laughs> the key thing they were doing is they were um, they were acting as if it was safer than an ordinary opioid and really you know th that drug was supposed to be used for people who um, had terminal illnesses. Or had you know had other kinds of very severe pain, not just chronic pain, not for you go to the dentist, not for all the things it was used for, and certainly not to create and feed serious addiction. And they knew it was happening, and the family made billions of dollars. The Sacklers, um, and yeah, the Sacklers did. And he, the, the prosecution back in 2006, the three executives—they were not Sackler family members. The three executives pleaded guilty to misdemeanors, and even not negligent homicide or depraved indifference, or whatever the legal language might the be. Misdemeanors, the misdemeanors of the mislabeling, and they could have gone to prison even for the misdemeanor pleas for a short period of time, but they were not sentenced. The company goes on, made billions of dollars. We know what happened a couple years ago, where there started to be more of a crackdown in terms of civil lawsuits brought by states. And others, and recently, you know, it's going through a bankruptcy now. And in that bankruptcy process, the Department of Justice is now um, trying to settle out criminal charges. So that would be a second time around. You know, now that's, there, you know, again, it's sort of like it's sort of like going after the head of Wells Fargo and saying you can't work in the industry after he's retired. He made all his money. You know, going after Purdue right now um, for, on criminal charges, you know, sort of, sort of sad and too late. I mean, you want a system that nips this stuff in the bud. And it's largely done on the state level, isn't it? Uh, don't uh, different states take different approaches in challenging people like uh, Purdue and the Sacklers? Well, the, the criminal case I mentioned in 2006 was a federal case under the federal mm -hmm. laws. On um, the thing recently, the civil cases have come up um, 
from the state. Um, I think that those cases have come up from the state AGs trying to get, you know, compensation, sort of similar to what happened with um, big tobacco, you know, for the cost, the harm. They, you know, the, the cost they externalized when they made their billions of dollars for the company and for themselves. Now, Boeing is working to get its 737 MAX reapproved. Has Boeing faced any criminal charges for how it handled the 737's safety problems? Uh, and, and would not we call that, what not, that Boeing did an example right. of white collar crime? Yeah, yeah. Let me. I want to answer. I, I skipped the question. One of the questions you asked, and I want to blend it together with the Boeing one, which is the crashes. Obviously, white collar crime can cause create violence and death. Right. That's what you're kind of getting at. And mm -hmm. I think it's really important that people understand that these big money white collar crimes have violence embedded in them, and it's so. And they have real victims. You know, whether it's people who died of opioid addiction or their families or the communities that are devastated by it. Or when, when you look at the Boeing example, when, when people knew there was a problem and yet still um, ignored it and let, you know, and planes, several planes crash. I think it was two major crashes and families lose loved ones and they die. You know, it, it, this is terrible and it is violent. And you know, it, it's so upsetting to me, and it came to mind the other day when um, there's been a lot of focus on uh, Donald Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. People focus on concerns that she'll participate in the, you know, the um, overturning of Obamacare. They're worried about what she'll do about reproductive freedom. But I'm also worried about her view on white-collar crime. Um, when she was on the circuit court, she um, wrote a, a lengthy dissent in a decision, she opposed. So right now, you know, um, there, there was a, there's a different states have laws barring felons, um, convicted felons from ever owning a handgun or ever owning guns hmm. and any kind of firearm. And she thinks that should should not apply to someone who was convicted and served time for a white collar crime. And I'm working on a piece on this, but but what's really ironic is the case in question. The person who'd been imprisoned had. I think it was he. The, the, well, the details are he he was caught because there was a whistleblower under this thing called the False Claims Act, and he had been selling inserts um, for shoes. This company had inserts for shoes that were not compliant with Medicare that were sold to people whose feet were swelling because they had diabetes or other foot ailments. And these, you know, his lawyer said, well, no one was hurt. Well, that's not the point. Maybe no one was helped either. You're selling a product that doesn't work. And he did serve prison time. But what he, after he gets out of prison, he wants to keep his firearms. And in her dissent, she came up with this idea, which that, that, that you know, somehow in her, her reading of the history, which I don't think is accurate at all, that white collar, um, you know, criminals don't create danger, don't create, aren't violent. But... Let me just kind of tie this up. The, the False Claims Act that led to the whistleblowers turning him in, that statute, she should know, was, um, was created under Lincoln, um, called the Lincoln Law, during the Civil War. And it was modeled after similar um, what's called TAM statutes where people could turn um, in businesses and others who were um, committing fraud. In particular, the False Claims Act is, is only for... Um, when somebody finds out about a government contractor committing fraud. So when Lincoln created the law, it was when bi when business folks, ordinary people, were selling to the Union Army shoddy uniforms 
that would fall apart when they were on the battlefield. That kind of fraud can cost lives. And so, you know, there's this way that I can't even believe she might be on the Supreme Court and would be perpetuating this inequality where somehow white-collar criminals are thought as, as not dangerous. Adding, I know I'm going on and on, Leonard, but one more piece. No, I think Brad it's important. Brad and it's Brad not Trump been discussed. Brad, the guy um, who used to work on, run Trump's campaign, Brad Parscale, who was, who mm-hmm. resigned from the campaign, or, or he's, he didn't resign from the campaign, but he's sort of, you know. He was fired he was after Tulsa was such a flop. Well, he wasn't actually fired. Out. I mean, he was like. He was, he's totally still working on it, but he's not in the leadership role. Well, you know, this is a guy who's apparently being investigated for um, maybe money laundering, maybe some kind of fraud invested in, involved in the use of the funds from um, either the inauguration or the campaign. I haven't followed that completely. But, you know, this is a guy, you know, they say white-collar criminals aren't violent. Well, you know, he had guns apparently, according to the reporting, either threatening his wife or, or threatening himself. Um, it's not uncommon um, where people who are being cornered who have um, for these for white collar crime turn violent. So, you know, I, I'd like to make that clear. And I'm, I'm kind of offended and disappointed that a someone nominated for the Supreme Court would hold those views. The investment bank Goldman Sachs has been called government Sachs because of all the its executives who have gone to work in Washington. And uh, Donald Trump made Boeing executive Patrick Shanahan, the deputy secretary of defense in 2017, acting secretary of defense in 2019, although uh, he withdrew. Are top business leaders too close to the government to government officials? Uh, well, what's been called the revolving door between government and the private sector has that uh, affected oversight and, and enforcement? This problem, you, you really nailed it. This problem, you know, it's always existed the concern of what's called capture, you know, government capture, where those who are being regulated might have too much power over the agencies that are designed to regulate them. And it's, it's complicated, right? Um, on the one hand, you want people who understand how a business works um, in order to educate the folks inside of governments. So they understand the details. But the problem with the revolving door is that you're not hiring someone who says, okay, I've seen this, and now I understand my job is to represent the people and the public interest, and I'm going to use the knowledge I have to do that. A revolving door means they're just making a stop inside of government so they can then line up at an even better paying job on the outside, meaning they might go right on the people on the outside. And that's, mm. the, that's the problem. I mean, I, you know, I worked in finance before. I know plenty of people who have done that, and I think they've made, done a great job inside of regulatory agencies. But there's always that risk of the revolving door. And with Trump, it's unbelievable. He is, he's appointed people to head um, – had, you know, different agencies who, you know, who are, you know, literally right from lobbying organizations or right from industry who are making clear their goal, what their goals are um, in terms of um, not working in the public interest, but working for the private profit of the industries they came from. And there needs to be a balance. You know, I just want to be clear. I don't think business, you know, I believe in, in markets, but markets that are regulated. I don't think the answer is to have you know, a Soviet-style, you know, central provisioning of goods and services from a government. It's going to have, you know, any kind of organization is going to have its own, you know, things. I'm not for that. What I'm for is proper balance where you have the private sector in balance with 
a strong public sector and strong enforcement um, that's up to the task, that's not captured, and that's not looking to you know grease their own pockets. You note that businesses incorporated in Delaware can protect executives from responsibility, even if they're grossly ne negligent. Do states have different rules uh, about obligations of corporate directors? And uh, since Delaware is Joe Biden's state, has he taken a stance on the responsibilities of corporations or of, of corporate executives? I have not looked into, you know, that's, so corporations are, uh, are, regulated at both the state and federal level. At the state level is how a corporation gets chartered and comes into existence. And that's a state level um, issue. I'm not sure what role, I don't know that Joe Biden has ever been in the state in state government. And I have not looked into hmm. what his I don't think so. been. Yeah, on that. And you know, different states vary. I mean, Delaware tends to be a popular place to incorporate, however. Uh, he, uh, in July, he called for, quote, an end to the era of shareholder capitalism. What's shareholder capitalism? So um, there are different so shareholder. Shareholder capitalism is the idea that a corporation should be run to maximize short term profits for the shareholders, as opposed to thinking also, or putting first customers or suppliers or employees or the community. There's been a popular movement where um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce last year, I think it was last July or August of 2019, for the first time kind of denounced shareholder capitalism and said we need to be think more about a broader range of constituents. Um, that sounds nice on you know, on a press release. Um, but the question is, what does that look like in practice? But I think it's, it is really important. Um, there's been, you know, we were talking earlier, you said, we know, the Supreme Court thinks of a corporation as a person. And I point out, well, sometimes they think that, sometimes they think it's an association of owners. There are different ways that it's conceptualized corporations to protect a certain kind of corporate power, which is usually the power of the senior management, and to a lesser degree, the shareholders. But what they haven't done is thought of the corporation as a team, as a group of individuals, like the employees who come to work every day, like the customers. Um, and I think the more that we move in the direction Joe Biden's talking about and others are talking about, even uh, corporate leaders, when we start thinking more broadly, I think it's better. I mean, you know, the idea that if you yeah, go ahead. No, doesn't globalization complicate all of this, where the rich and, and, and corporations as well can uh, relocate to many countries? Um, some of the, the those countries even allow the wealthy to buy citizenship. So uh, accountability can be rather complicated. It sure can, um, but people still want to live in the United States physically and have markets here and sell their products and have employees here. And if Congress wanted to, we could make sure, you know, we don't have to have the kinds of things where companies create these fictions of moving things offshore to avoid taxes. I mean, there's a way if we wanted to do this, we could do it. But it gets so complicated. I mean, the public doesn't fully understand. I mean, remember, 
I'm somewhat discouraged because when things are really, really simple, like the simplest thing, you know, you hear Donald Trump say one thing um, about COVID, and then you actually hear experts say another, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I'm going to trust the experts. That's very clear. But we still could have 30 percent of the U.S. who still believe what their you know, dear leader says, regardless of the facts in front of them. And so different governors will have take different positions on it. Yeah. I mean, so how are we going to convince the public on something where, again, the science is strong, whether it's climate change or how we can fix the tax laws? I think the simpler message is I think people it's hard to believe how much folks will lie to you just for their own benefit. And I think that sometimes the simple stories work the best. I think the fact that Donald Trump paid in 2016 just $750 in taxes for some reason resonates more for people than the fact of the New York Times story from a couple of years ago when we found out that, you know, his he and his family may have cheated, you know, may have taken in more than $400 million in today's, you know, today's dollars unfairly without paying taxes on it. I mean, I thought that was a bombshell, but it didn't take hold. It turns out $750 might be the magic number. In a number of cases, wealthy defendants have argued uh, what is now called the affluenza defense, that being punished would be cruel and unusual simply because they're accustomed to living well. Are the wealthy increasingly being held to uh, different standards, uh, being allowed yeah. to be exempt from the law? I, the different standards come into play from the beginning of the commission of an act that might be criminal all the way through through the sentencing process. It was it's so stark you would hear it when um, one of the sentencing there were two cases against um, two cases against Paul Manafort. In one of the sentences, the judge said, you know, this he's been you know perfectly good person until now. You know, mm-hmm. and you're thinking. I don't know. Did you look on Wikipedia? Because it doesn't seem like he's been, you know, look who he's worked for. I don't think so. You know, so there's this kind of, or you get, the other thing you get recently is, recently, in the couple, last couple of days, when it came out that Donald Trump might have employed his daughter in his businesses, but separately also hired her as a consultant as a way to um, kind of evade or avoid taxes on some business income. Um, you know, and it, it's, you know, this stuff, some of these cases is pushing the envelope and some of it's just like ripping up the envelope and setting it on fire. And um, um, and I know that's the wrong metaphor because they're not actually referring to a real envelope, but you get the idea. Um, yeah, well, but the, the question is, will uh, they, these things be brought up as criminal charges well, after after the, the president leaves the White House and uh, after Ivanka is no longer uh, uh, employed by the government? Well, there's two things. One. At the federal level, there'll be pardons all around, whether it's from Trump himself or if he, you know, if he resigns five minutes before the end of his term from Pence. At the state level, these things could very well be, you know, either tax fraud or some of his other stuff, bank fraud. But I think the bigger point is that mutually assured immunity. What you hear people saying in defense of Trump is, oh, all the wealthy people mm-hmm. do this with their money, hire their kids as consultants. You know, so there's a little bit of, you know, he, you know either changing the tax laws to let the, you know, top 0.01% not pay more taxes. And then he says, see, you may hate me. I might be an authoritarian, but see, I gave you a tax cut. But it's even more where you can't call me out is his view on the stuff I do because everyone else does it to a lesser degree, right? And I think to some degree, Trump has ruined it for people who have quietly been kind of working the system. I mean, there's that old expression, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. 
I don't mm. think in this case the hogs are going to get slaughtered, but he sure has exposed how badly this whole uh, pigsty smells. We have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I've been speaking with Jennifer Taub, professor of law at Western New England University. Her book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime, published by Viking. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, that uh, brings us to the close of today's show. Uh, special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Or you can visit our website, LendedLopinAtLarge.com, where you will find links to all of our past shows. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just to say hello, you can send me an email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to the website, give to wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air. And, and one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BA. AI buddy. Uh, there are listeners who contribute $10, $15, $20, whatever, um, each month to help keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime by my guest, Professor Jennifer Taub. But please make sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And I want to send out a big thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support this show and this station, because we do not take ads. We don't take money from any foundations or anything. Uh, the Koch brothers do not give us money. Uh, one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we're off tomorrow, but we hope you'll join us again on Thursday when MIT professor Sinan Aral will discuss his new book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. See you then. <laughs>